Namaste. I'm Reverend Wendy Craig Purcell here at the Unity Center in beautiful San Diego. You know, we are always searching for ways to live the example of our teachings in order to improve our world. One of the ways we accomplish this is with Partners Fair Trade Boutique, our store here at the Unity Center campus. You'll find many unique items from around the world, all ethically sourced through fair trade. This morning, as I've said, we are exploring some lighthearted ideas with this theme of back to school, September being a time that many of us associate with that, you know, starting classes, learning new things. And this morning, I want to share um, and build upon a piece that I found quite a number of years ago. And I, it just made me laugh and made me nod my head. And the piece is called Nine Rules for being human. And the rules are very short, and so I'll be expanding a bit on each of these. But I found myself nodding in agreement, and I don't know to whom to credit this piece, but nine rules for being human. So the very first one, first rule for being human, you will receive a body. <laughs> right? We come in, and we've got to have this physical thing to move through this three-dimensional existence, this, this world, this, this life. And we may love the vehicle that we've incarnated in, or not so much so. We may love it during a certain period of our lives. And then one day we wake up and we go, how did that happen? I will never forget. A number of years ago, trying on a pair of shorts in a department store, standing in front of the mirror. I don't know why I'm telling you this so personally. And suddenly looking and going, whose legs are those? Where did those come from? I don't rec So, you know, we go through all sorts of stages in our life. We've got this physical vehicle called our body. And yet, and yet, we know that we are more than this thing, right? Whether it's in great condition or not, whether it's hurting us or not, whether we've got answers as to why it feels the way it does some mornings or some days or some weeks, what we know at the very core is we are, the Bible says, wondrously and marvelously made. I mean, we really are. It's inspiring if we ever remind ourselves or, or watch programs that tell us about just how this thing that we call us, the physical version of us, operates. It really is quite amazing and miraculous. And yet, we know that we are more than this thing. Charles Fillmore, and many of you online and in this room will recognize that name. Some of you may be new to it. Charles Fillmore was the co-founder of the Unity Movement. He co-founded the movement with his wife, Myrtle Fillmore, in the late 1800s. They had no intention of founding an educational or religious movement, but nonetheless, what happened as a result of their own healing, physical healing, is as they shared about their physical healing and how they experienced the physical healing, particularly Myrtle healing herself, of tuberculosis, as they shared about that, a movement developed. But in the experience of healing, Myrtle had to deal with a body that was diseased. And at that time, tuberculosis was a pretty serious illness. It still is, but very, very common. And many, many people died of it. And Myrtle was in her mid-40s, was given a prognosis that she had about six months to live. 
She had kids and she was determined. I, I, I'm not ready to leave this physical form. And at that time in our country, there was this new idea that had its roots in transcendentalism, this new idea called the connection between the mind and the body. And it was referred to as the mind cure or the mental cure movement. And in the mix of that, and in the desire for an answer for a healing of her physical condition, Myrtle started reading and exploring all sorts of ideas, and she attended a lecture, and in that lecture she heard an idea that was contrary to anything she had ever heard before or thought before, that she was a child of God and that her body didn't inherit sickness. And whether you agree with that statement or not, she believed it. And she started to work with it at the level of experiencing herself as not just this physical form that was causing her a lot of pain and discomfort and problems and was giving her a ticket out. She started to look at herself differently. Yes, I received a body, but I can also work with that body. And she began to think about her physical form in a different way. She began to meditate. She began to speak uplifting and wholesome words to her body. She began to correct her self-talk. She began to, to ask for forgiveness of her body for the way that she thought about it. How many of you sometimes criticize your body so much, right? We might be able to relate to that. And, and yet, in the words of Charles Fillmore, and I think I, I forgot to mention this when I was telling you about Charles, Charles said that the body is a slowed down version of thought. A very interesting concept to, to just play around with. And Myrtle did, and a lot of what we call the new thought movement actually has its roots deeply connected to physical healing at the level of the connection between the mind, consciousness, and the physical form. And so there's this deep agreement and deep belief that while we will receive a body, we need it to get around, we are more than this body, okay? Second rule from this little piece that I found years ago, you will learn lessons. And we can put, we can say that statement with any sort of edge in our voice that we want to, you will learn lessons. You will learn lessons, right? And sometimes it feels that way as well. We really are enrolled in a full-time school, the laboratory of our lives. I remember having conversations with Jonathan when he was shortly coming out of college and with our daughter Jennifer when she graduated as well. You know, there's a certain... When you graduate and you've worked so hard and you, you're finally out of school, you think, what? I'm done. And those of us who are adult with a few more candles on our birthday cakes think, oh, no, you're not. <laughs> you're just beginning, right? Why? Because we know that learning is continuous, that we are in our very life is an ongoing classroom, an ongoing classroom. We may like the lessons that we have to learn, or we may not like the lessons that we have to learn. I believe that the teachings that we have in New Thought, that we have in Unity, are meant to be tested in the very laboratory of our lives. One of the things 
that drew me to unity, besides its inclusivity and its practicality, was the idea to take the ideas and the practices that I was reading about or my minister was telling me about, to take those ideas, those practices, and test them. Test them in the laboratory of my life to see if they worked. And if they didn't, well then set them aside and try something else. I was never told I had to believe a certain something, but was always invited. Take these ideas and see how you can work them in your life. And to a very large extent, I mean, I wouldn't be here doing what I'm doing if I didn't find that within our teachings and our practices that they do work and that they help us to learn our lessons and to move forward. I remember coming across another story about a, a teacher of science, and I think it was either middle school or high school, teacher of science who focused primarily on chemistry and taught his students well from the book all the things that they needed to, to learn. And in addition to focusing on chemistry, the science teacher had at the front of his room a poster of the anatomy of the human body with all of the muscles and the skeletal system all named out. And at the end of the school year, when it was time for the final, the students all paraded in and they sat down. The poster was no longer in the front of the room. And they opened their final and the first half of the final was about all the things that they had covered from the front of the room that the teacher and the book had taught them. But then when they turned to the second half of the final, all of the questions had to do, in fact, there was a picture of the very same diagram of the body, and it was fill in the names of the bones and the muscles. And I can remember when I read this story that, that it went on to say how the kids just groaned. This is not fair. You didn't tell us that we had to learn this stuff. And the science teacher's intent was to teach a deeper lesson, right? That it's not just what is formally presented to us that we need to learn from, but we should really be keeping our eyes open and paying attention to as much as we possibly can and realize that it does matter. It does matter. I, I loved that. I don't know if I would have passed that second part of the final test if I had been a student in that class. But I'll tell you, if I had been, I would have learned, I think, even more important than the textbook stuff that he would have been teaching about chemistry. I would have walked away with that kernel of deep wisdom of I really need to realize that all of life is teaching me keep my eyes open. Third rule, a lesson is repeated until, not we die, <laughs> until it is learned. A lesson is repeated until it is learned. It may change form a little bit, but it will show back up again in our life. One of my favorite ways of describing this is, you know, in relationships. How many people have experienced dating or being with the same person in a different physical form? Again and again and again. 
Do you know what I'm saying here? Why? Okay, I'm obviously not making that clear enough. So you 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 date somebody for a while, and you go, oh, "This is not the right person. We just don't we don't fit." And you move on, and you date a completely different person, and after a while, it's like, "This is familiar," and you go, "It's not working," and, and we move on, and we repeat that, and we suddenly start having the same familiar pattern. Are you with me now? Right. And so the idea being <clears throat> the lesson is repeated until we learn it. Life, whether we like it or not, is kind of rigged in our favor. And that doesn't mean that we always like the way it's way the, the learning is going, but we are meant to learn from our life experiences. And if we don't get the lesson the first time, life, the universe, whatever we want to call it, is benevolent enough or loving enough or wants us to survive enough that it's going to keep saying, Wendy, here it is again. Maybe you didn't get it last time, but here it is again. A lesson is learned until it is repeated. Challenge is most of us want to start at the middle and work our way to the top. But have you noticed how we don't usually get to do that? Have you noticed you know, when we, when we are wanting to learn something new, wouldn't it be nice to kind of just do it really well the first time and then just get better and better and better and better? But it's, it's not like that. We fumble and fall and, and make mistakes along our way. A lesson is repeated until it is learned. And so we, we say, okay, I want to learn to be more patient. What happens when we ask for that, do you know? And the worst. <laughs> what happens when we say to an infinite, malleable, responsive universe, I want to be more patient. The universe says, okay, here are all the red lights. Here are all the things that are going to break apart. I'm personalizing it. But it, it, why? Why is it when we say in earnestness, I want to be a vessel for greater patience, that life seems to present us with exactly the opposite. Raise your hand if you've ever had that experience. I want to be more loving. I want to be, be less judgmental. And you're so earnest and sincere in that. And then suddenly it's like, but this isn't what I meant. But the universe is basically saying to us, but where else do you practice it? But in the very place where you are called to have to develop that skill, that capacity, right? So when we say my lesson, or I want to learn to be more loving, or to be more kind, or to be more patient, I think we want to be mindful that what that's going to look like is the opportunity to practice, and to not be discouraged and think that somehow we've messed up but to go, oh, this is actually what I have asked for, and now let me step into this and practice. Fourth, there are no mistakes, only lessons. Say that one with me. There are no mistakes, only lessons. There are no mistakes, only lessons. You may or may not agree with all of these. You may find that part of your mind is fighting with them, and that's okay. I would suggest just try them on for size. See what happens when you hold these ideas and you 
approach your life as if they could be true, that there are no mistakes, only lessons. What was that anonymous reading I shared with you? The past is where you learn the lesson, the future is where you apply it. When I look at, I love to watch documentaries. I love to watch scientific kinds of programs. I'm fascinated by, by evolution. I'm fascinated by the field of what's called evolutionary biology. And I'm fascinated by it because it supports my personal belief that life, that there is a force for good on the planet. And that life itself is always growing and evolving sometimes through us, sometimes around us, sometimes in, in spite of us. And that the very things that we think of as mistakes or failures really are shaping forces, molding forces in our life to help us develop greater capacities, whatever the capacities might be, whether it is greater resilience or faith or creativity or, or flexibility. There are no mistakes, only lessons. Someone said, change is inevitable, growth is optional. If at first you don't succeed, you're running about average. I find comfort in that. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again, well, yes. But if at first you don't succeed, you're running about average, yeah, I think there's a lot of, a lot of just gutsy, practical wisdom in that. I think this little story is attributed to the scientist Carl Sagan, but I could have it wrong. But I remember the story. And it's a story about someone who became well esteemed in his field of science. But he was reflecting upon an important lesson that he learned from a mistake. And he was a little boy, and he was taking milk out of the refrigerator, and he spilt the milk all over the floor. Mess. All over the floor. His mother came in and didn't do what moms might often do, which is to feel frustrated, I have a mess to clean up. But the mom got down on the floor with this little boy and said, let's play. And they played in the milk and they splattered in the milk and they did whatever they did to, for the little boy just to experience spilt milk. Doesn't always have to be a terrible thing. And then the mother did another very, very wise thing and said, let's get a rag, and now let's clean up the mess, right? And this scientist, years later, had commented on how that little teachable moment stayed with him. And in that teachable moment, he said, I learned about creativity, I learned about exploration, and I learned how to handle mistakes and messes. To me, that's to be kind of like a, a forgivable parent, an askable parent. To, to try to walk through life with this mindset and this heart set that everything, even when it looks like a mistake, is a lesson and an opportunity. Fifth, learning lessons does not end. Can I have an amen to that? Yeah, it doesn't end. I like the person who said this, here's how to tell if you're done. If you have a body, you're not done. The lessons never end. Here's how to tell if you're done. If you have a body, you're not done. If you have a body, you're not done. So forever life is saying, here's another opportunity to stretch. Here's another opportunity to grow. Here's another 
place to, to stretch. Here's another thing to correct. Here's another thing to undo. Here's another thing to take on. Here's another thing to let go. Learning does not end. The sixth, there is no better there than here. Oh, boy. Does anything come up inside of you that says, I, I don't agree with that, or I don't want that to be true? There's a lot of kind of Zen quality to that, I think. There is no better there than here. When your there has become a here, you will simply obtain another there that will again look better than here. Nod your head if you can see yourself in that at all, right? Like, oh, I just want to get to whatever. I just want this in my life. And you work really hard, and you get this. And this is what? It's satisfying for a while, right? But what eventually happens? In most cases, not, not in all, but in most cases, most of us then are off in our mind and our heart to desiring what? Another there. Another there. And so I think there's a this delicate balance of allowing ourselves to vision, allowing ourselves to care and to want and to move toward things that are meaningful to us, while at the very same time, and here's the important piece of it, I think, while at the very same time, savoring exactly where we are right now and savoring all of the process of growing into whatever that there is that we're craving. So it's about not being, it's about not forgoing the joy and the contentment and the appreciation and the savoring of where we are and the journey itself, right? You know, we're told that we are to to enjoy the journey as much as the destination. We can say those words and they can sound cliche, but they're also actually very, very true. It was written, if you can't be happy today right where you are with the people who are in your life today, then there is very little chance that you will be happy even when you get where you want to be with the people you want to be there with. I think our teachings really equip us to be able to savor where we are and to enjoy where we are. These next few are quick. Number seven, others are merely mirrors to us. That's a tough one sometimes, isn't it? That's a tough one to just play with the idea, even if you don't completely agree with it, to just hold it for a bit. Could it be true that what I'm consistently seeing and noticing about other people is somehow a reflection of something inside of me. That's what the concept or the teaching is about. That if I am continually seeing and noticing certain characteristics in another, that it may say just as much, if not more, about me than it does about the other. And what it can say is that, whoa, those are things that I see in this other but I've never really embraced them in myself. Sometimes it can be a very positive thing. 
a very positive thing, that you seem to always notice certain positive characteristics in other people, is a reflection that there's something about that inside of you, and it may be that you just haven't embraced that or acknowledged that same quality in you. The opposite is also true, though. Being that if we are just forever noticing certain negative, critical things about others in our lives, that it doesn't mean that that's not in those people. Are you still with me? But if we keep noticing it, and it's such a thing for us, we might want to turn it around and simply, gently, courageously and honestly ask, how does that live in me? And is there something here about that that maybe it would be beneficial for me to take a look at in me, rather than being so focused about seeing it in them? Does that make sense? That's kind of some deep work, right? But it can also be very fruitful work. The eighth, your answers lie only inside of you. And the emphasis is, the emphasis is on your answers. Your answers lie inside of you. Not the answers to the universe, but your answers lie inside of you. I remember how often and how effective it was in a counseling situation when I would be working with somebody and they were struggling and saying, I just don't know what to do, I just don't know what to do. And I would say, well, let's just take a breath here for a moment. And if you imagined that you did know what to do, what would it be? And almost always they had an answer. It's like, well, what if that is the answer? And it would be as if you could see little light bulbs going off. I think one of the things we could do to really encourage our, our young people around us is to have greater trust in themselves. But trust that is born from time spent in stillness and self-reflection, where we really encourage those around us, and in particular our young people, Get to know your inner self. Be quiet and still. Pay attention to those feelings that you have inside, that gut feeling, that intuition, that, that sense. And begin to trust it more. I think we would raise a culture of more genuinely confident and whole young people if we had the courage and the willingness to do that. And the very last rule for being human, and maybe this is why I enjoyed it so much, unfortunately, you will forget all this. <laughs> so they were, number one, you will receive a body. Number two, you will learn lessons. Number three, a lesson is repeated until learned. Number four, there are no mistakes, only lessons. Number five, learning lessons does not end. Number six, there is no better there than here. Less, rule number nine, others are merely mirrors for you or of you. Lesson eight, your answers lie only inside of you. And number nine, unfortunately, you will forget all this. Maybe not all of it, but I think we will often forget a good chunk of it. I hope it made you laugh, and I hope it made you think and um, that you walk away with something practical. Namaste. Namaste. 